Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I'm the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, we are in the last couple weeks of the season here. Those races are really tightening up. How's it going? How's your week been treating you? Uh, it's been going well. It's a rainy weekend in New Jersey, so all the youth baseball tournaments have been canceled, sadly. And so that frees me up to talk about the major leagues. And it's it's I, I find that, you know, it's interesting with um, there's a game of musical chairs going on, I think, both in the American League and National League, who's going to make the playoffs, and it keeps changing. So I'm I'm focused on that, you know, and every day it seems like a different swing. Like, it's amazing that the Astros went from potential – number one seed to a number six seed in like one day <laughs> like i don't know what's going on there so um you know just because they're flip-flopping so much it's a really interesting time i personally have my eyes on the san diego padres yes um, me they too. they are the you know fan graphs used to have this series team entropy where it was okay how what's the perfect record for everybody to go down the stretch so that we end up with some crazy six-way tie and all these play-in games to get into the play-in game kind of a thing um unfortunately team entropy died with the the adjustments to the playoffs and and how ties work at the end of the season now there's no tiebreaker games that get played it's just head-to-head record and and going back to the past handful of years and so on and so forth um so that's a bummer we won't get another game 163 ever again at least doesn't look like it but I kind of miss those. The yeah. Padres are as close as we can get, I think, to having a team entropy. They are, I believe, uh, I'm trying to pull this up as I speak, but uh, Fangraphs has a lot of different tabs. <laughs> um, they, they are like just a handful of games out, but we are down to our last handful of games here. So they really need to almost win out and the Cubs to almost lose out and a couple of the other teams in that NL wildcard race to really cooperate with them. But... So far, they're on their hot streak, and the Cubs are on their cold streak. So there's there's a chance here. There's there's a real chance. You're saying there's and a chance. I think it's just fun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a well, according to Fangraphs, it's a one percent chance. It's better than point one, which was a few days ago. So okay, all right, they moved up a little bit. Sneaky, Manny Machado, even though he has tennis elbow, is hitting home runs and trying to make a stand. So great. The way I saw it framed was like coming into the season, you probably would have put it somewhere around a 1% chance that the Padres would have been this disappointing. So, hey, a 1% chance, that that doesn't mean it's a 0% chance. That can still happen. Um, obviously, a long shot, but it's, it's something fun to root for down the stretch if you don't necessarily have a huge dog in any of these races. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm out here in Arizona rooting for those D-backs. I think they... They're knock on wood. They they've disappointed the locals out here before, but they're in a pretty decent spot to at least get into the playoffs, and then we'll see what they can do with uh, two starting pitchers in their rotation. But uh, I digress. <laughs> yeah, um, and 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 funny because San Diego's just gotten hot, oddly enough, on the heels of that big uh, Rosenthal Lynn article, basically condemning them. So I don't know if that had an influence or not, but it's interesting. Right, tis the season for moratorium articles <laughs> plenty yeah, on the, the Padres, plenty yeah. on the nets <laughs> it's weird it's i don't know why they wait until now for those when it was like clear at the deadline or, or a couple weeks after the deadline like yeah the, the, this didn't go as planned but um yeah let's let's stick with the padres and transition into kind of our first bit of news here they stuck rich hill on waivers and 
he has not been claimed <laughs> and I, I don't think he will be. I, I think by, the, the latest update I have here was from the 14th that he hasn't been claimed, but I'm assuming his waiver period is over by now. Um, it, not a, nothing earth shattering that either a, he went on waivers or B he went unclaimed, you know, as much as I love the guy, he is still rich Hill and he's not pitching amazing. And at this point in the season, you know, once we crossed into September, if you claim a guy, he's not going onto your postseason roster, even if you do make it. Um, and even if you, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure, certain anybody would have been penciling Rich Hill onto their postseason roster at this point, but it's a consideration. It's one more reason not to claim a guy. Um, but I guess, I guess a couple takeaways from this. The first being, you know, this was, I don't want to say the Padres waving the white flag but almost <laughs> like it was in that direction it was them starting to say like yeah okay we're we're out of it and then they rattle off this big winning streak and now they're right back in it and so i, I bet they're at least a little bit glad they still have rich hill um the the, the next kind of angle of this is we didn't love this trade for them to acquire rich hill and Jimon Choi. we didn't love that at the time of the deadline we had those guys pretty close to you know, zero surplus, and they gave up a couple of real prospects for them. You know, not not guys that are going to be shooting up top 100 lists or anything, but meaningful depth pieces that will improve any farm system. And, and they gave them up for half a season of Rich Hill and half a season of an injured G. Monchoy. And so we kind of questioned that, and it, it seems like we were right to do so. And then kind of the last point to this is just the general blah of all of these big high profile players that have been placed on waivers and switched teams. So John, what, what's, which one of those angles do you want to hit on first? Is Rich Hill done finally? Is that what it's saying? Cause he's what? 42, 43. Um, and you know, every year you think he's done, right? And then he keeps coming back and then he's done, right? And then he keeps coming back. So, and now he's been waived and no one's claimed him. And I get that it's the time of year where rosters are pretty much set, but you can go to 28 players on the roster. So you could fit him in technically as a depth guy if you need innings eaten. So it's a little surprising. I mean, he has not, not been any great shakes, obviously, this year. Um, but maybe the long storied career of Rich Hill is finally coming to an end. That's my first thought. And if it is, like, what a ride, you know? Comes yeah. up as this <laughs> top prospect, makes an immediate impact, just completely falls apart, injuries, the yips, all of that goes to independent ball and you know if you if you split his career in half and you took the first chunk of it where just kind of eyeballing this on fan graphs he was worth about five six wins above replacement through 2012 let's call it 2013 um we'll, we'll take it up to 2014 worth about six wins and if you told me that at that time that 34 year old rich hill would go on to be worth 21 wins above replacement for his career just slap on another 15 in his late 30s and early 40s like nobody would have believed that and here he is and he's done it without some you know no big velo boost or anything nothing he, he just he made his way back he found a niche for himself he had these wonderful you know it's like two breaking ball approach from a funky arm angle and you know just a just a, a fun guy that everybody loved to have on their team. He always looks like he just took off his like lab goggles from an experiment and he has the like imprint around his eyes. <laughs> I think that's just the wrinkles of him being a late 30 early 40 year old. But yep. A fun guy. If this is 
not not to write his obituary too soon or anything, but if this is the end of his big league career, then what a career it was. Um, but I do hope that some new team that he hasn't played for yet picks him up this offseason and gives him one last ride. He should go for Edwin Jackson's record of pitching for the most possible teams, you know, so it's doable. I, if if yeah. someone had claimed him this time, we would have gotten another, <laughs> if a new team had claimed him, we would have ticked another box off that there list. You go. I, th- I think that's pretty much the only thing left for him to accomplish. Yeah. Um, so, so that's, that's the Padres, definitely a team to keep an eye on down this stretch here and probably the most fun team to watch if you're rooting for chaos. Um, Speaking of some of the other waiver guys, though, Matt Moore, who was originally waived by the Angels uh, right at the end of August in their whole waiver wire exodus, um, got picked up by the Guardians, and then they waived him again on, I believe, September 19th, and the Marlins picked him up. And so for the Marlins, he's not going to be postseason eligible because he wasn't in the organization by September 1st. So this is just an in-season move for them they're spending a little bit of money to get a decent lefty and and the marlins have they're hanging on to it they're a long shot for or they, they've been all season a long shot for the playoffs because even as they've played well it's been kind of fluky it's been a lot of one run wins a lot of bloops and bleeders and and just kind of by the skin of their teeth getting out of it but they're still in the thick of the race and every little boost they can add to their big league roster down the stretch helps. And especially right now, they're pretty battered by injuries and and we'll get to some others maybe later in the episode here. But even just as a regular season addition, not a bad one for them. From the Guardian side of things, it is them throwing in the towel. And, you know, this came a few days before the Twins officially clinched the division. The Guardians... I don't think they're fully eliminated from the wild card race yet. Actually, they probably are just with the quality of teams in front of them, but um, their season's done. A little bit surprising that Giolito and Lopez didn't get waived and or claimed, but at least more is out of there. It's going to save the Guardians a few bucks. It's going to cost the Marlins a few bucks, but not a whole lot else to it, at least uh, from my point of view. Do, Do you have anything else on that? No, only that. It's interesting that the Marlins picked him up because they already have a couple of good lefties. And so, okay, another lefty. Like, how many lefties can you have? That's usually a luxury for most teams. They've got an overabundance there now. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I bet they figure they just need innings covered at this point. They're really, at times this season, they've really been scraping into the bottom of the barrel. I think Devin Smeltzer has come up a handful of times (laughs) for them. Sorry, Devin. Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they've got Tanner Scott, lefty, Andrew Nardi, lefty, A.J. Puck, lefty, uh, Stephen Okert, lefty, uh, now Matt Moore, lefty. And those are their, their main – Robertson, of course, is one of their main guys. But other than that, not too much. So, um, yeah, <laughs> they're going to get a lot of lefties out. Yeah, I guess so. And that comes at a time when a lot of their you know direct rivals, the Braves, they're pretty right-handed heavy, and the Phillies are fairly right-handed. They might be kind of balanced. They have Harper, Schwarber, Stott. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Not to make too much of it. I think they just saw a quality arm and said, we'll, we'll take him for Yeah, for I mean, at this bucks. point, we're talking about scraps because we're almost yeah. at the end of the year. Well, speaking of scraps, let's. Um, that, that, that's a mean transition. I take that back. Uh, the Reds released Hunter Renfro. Um, he was another one of those Angels Exodus guys, and 
the Reds have already cut him loose. They've had a ton of roster movement this month. They're also trying to cling into that playoff race and scrap their way into one of those last spots. And they had a a team-wide COVID outbreak that made them put some players on the COVID list and call some up, and then they have to make room for some guys and shuffle players around, and Renfro gets lost in that shuffle. Um, He had not been any good at all since joining the Reds. He hit 128, 227, 205 in 44 plate appearances for them. Uh, Prior to that with the Angels, he was like right around a league average bat with kind of shaky defense, and he's kind of lived in this territory for the last couple years of this like does some things well, but not well enough to make up for some of his other shortcomings and kind of constant non-tender candidate. And now he doesn't make it all the way through this contract here. He'll be a free agent. He'll, I don't think anybody has any real reason to sign him down the stretch here, but he'll be a free agent this off season and maybe find a new home. He does still have power and a good arm and that'll play somewhere, but seems pretty clear he's in teams know who he is he's into the decline phase of his career and he's probably more of a bench platoon short side type player than anything else right now yeah and i think there's only so much you know room on a roster you can fit for a guy with that sort of limited productivity right and he used to be you know slightly above average right or average-ish you know and every kind of everybody can be a two-war player and this year he's declined a bit, so he's his WRC plus is 92, so he's below average hitter. Uh, never been that good a hitter, but you know now he, his OPB is uh, on base percentage is 297, so he's not even clearing the 300 bar, and his defense has gotten a little worse. So there's not much there to like. Why bother? I guess is the question. <laughs> you know, he's just a guy at this point. Yeah, definitely. Um, one I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but one point I want to make from this is just like. All of these waiver guys have been kind of terrible. Like, so much was made out of, look at all of this talent going on waivers at the end of August, and oh my goodness, this is bad for the game. And, you know, I think that's still, there's still an argument to be made there. And I think this is a little bit revisionist history to look at it from this lens, because, you know, anybody can have a bad month and change how something like that looks. But... Lucas Giolito with the Guardians, and he was the biggest profile of them all. 564 ERA, you know, not quite as bad as his stint with the Angels, but certainly not good, replacement level. Um, Matt Moore's been just kind of okay. Renfro gets released. Harrison Bader, if I pull him up, I'm pretty sure he's been kind of eh as well. Mm. Yeah, he's been, he's had a 15 WRC plus for the Reds in 34 plate appearances, and now he's hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, really the one exception there, Reynaldo Lopez has been very good. Um, which not, not too surprising that the reliever who throws hard is continuing to throw hard and get out. He, he actually hasn't given up a run since joining the guardians. Good for him. But I think generally speaking, the waiver claims did not work out for the teams that claimed them, which means in turn, they kind of did work out for the angels, you know, getting that money out of there for a team that was totally out of the race. Um, so, I mean, there's, I I don't want to make any overarching statement from this, you know, I don't think any team, if we get to this time next year and there's no rule changes or anything, and I don't know, pick your, pick your favorite impending free agent for next season. I'm 
Kyle Tucker. I think he's a couple years away from free agency, but a guy like him or, or whoever, you know, somebody in that Giolito kind of range who is in the last month of his contract before he hits free agency. I don't think teams are going to look at that guy and say, uh, let's, let's leave him. You know, we need a starter, but it didn't work out the last time a guy like that got claimed. So let's leave him. I don't think that's going to happen at all. I think more than anything, it's a reminder of like, just cause you, get a chance to pick up a player who should be an improvement doesn't mean they're going to be a slam dunk improvement every time, you know, in a month, anything can happen. Mike Trout can hit 180 and and not hit any home runs for a month because the next month he might go nuclear and hit 400 and hit 12 home runs. Like baseball is so subject to random chance and variation. And one month is such a small sample size that, yeah, we can look at the numbers and say like, yeah, this should be, you know, a half a win improvement for them down the stretch, but that doesn't mean it's going to be by any means. There's big, big error bars on those. You know, and I think you can expand the point to the trade deadline acquisitions because Giolito, you know, got a couple more, got, I'm sorry, not more, Giolito was a, a, a trade guy and he was not the same after he was traded and he was kind of declining anyway, but there's a couple of guys like that. If you look at Michael Lorenzen, I was just checking his stats out. He's really fallen off since the Phillies acquired him. I mean, the first half, second half numbers are really bad. And that includes a no-hitter. There's a no-hitter yeah. baked into those numbers. But, like, if you look at his um, his strikeout minus walk percentage, it was 13.2% in the first half and 58 in the second half. So, in other words, his strikeouts declined, his walks went up. Like, he's lost the plate. And so the Phillies didn't get what they traded for. And so and the, and the Angels, obviously, and the and Guardians didn't get what they thought they were getting in, in Giolito. Even Savala, you could argue, has not been that great so far for the Rays. So, like, we knew it was kind of like outside of – well, okay, even Scherzer has fallen apart. We can talk about him more. Um, but, you know, a lot of these trade deadline guys have really not been, like, big lifts for their team. And and like other years, sometimes they are this year, they're not. We knew it was kind of a weird deadline, and we knew there was, like, not a lot of slam dunk guys, but – you know, it's unusual to have them kind of fall this far off. Yeah, I think there's been studies done that, you know, typically players who are traded underperform with their new team. And part of that is, you know, part of what makes what might make a guy an attractive trade deadline candidate is like, I'm struggling to think of an exact example here, but, you know, like a Brandon Drury type from last year, I guess, where he had this really hot first half and it's like, oh, wow, he looks like a really solid hitter. Well, that's totally out of line with his career norms. So regression is expected anyway in that second half. And it might make him a more attractive trade candidate that he's playing so well, but he's still expected to regress. So even if he does regress to, you know, his career norms, that looks like a a big loss from a trade perspective because you thought you were trading for a 140 WRC plus guy and instead you got a 110 WRC plus guy. And those aren't the numbers exactly for Drury, just just pulling numbers out of thin air. But the idea being that, like, often the top trade candidates are overperforming their projections at the time to make them a top trade candidate. And so then you trade for them and they're going to naturally regress closer to their career norms. That's not necessarily what's happening with any of the guys in this case, but just kind of an overarching idea of, yeah, when you trade for a guy, they're probably going to, you know, on average, they're going to perform a little bit worse than they did in the first half. But... I think there's a couple kind of counterpoints to that of why it still is important, why st- teams still do give up prospects for players at the deadline. The first being that often the players that they're replacing with these deadline acquisitions are replacement level or sub-replacement level. 
or they just had a big guy go down for an injury and now they're down to like the scrap heaps or, or whatever. So even if, you know, let's just stick with the Brandon Drury example, you know, even if he's not going to be a 140 WRC plus guy down the stretch, all you're looking for is an improvement over the 80 WRC plus guy you're going to have to plug in to replace that injury or that you've been using all season and is underperforming. So there's that angle of it. And then the other angle of it is even if, you know, for every Giolito, for every guy like that who just doesn't perform at that star level that he could, it's not necessarily a one-to-one, but what you're shooting for is the Ioannis Cespedes, the guy who just goes nuclear down the stretch and carries your team into the playoffs like he did with the Mets when, when they acquired him at the deadline. And the positive, that that's like a risk worth taking, even if it's, you know, there's one Cespedes for every 10, 15, 20 Giolitos, that one Cespedes can be all it takes to get you a World Series. And that with how valuable that is, it, it makes the calculus, the risk reward work, worth it for these teams in some cases to, to pay up in terms of prospects and, and bet on that high upside play down the stretch. Yeah. And, you know, you can look at two years ago when the Braves acquired those outfielders like Eddie Rosario and Jorge Soler and Adam Duval, like those guys all produced and they were, they were betting on positive regression because they'd struggled a little bit in the year, which is why they were available. And then they took off when they were, uh, they, they each got hot they like, they kind of took turns getting hot in the playoffs. And so um, like Soler ended up being World Series MVP and Eddie Rosario was the NLCS MVP. Like they, they got hot at the right time, right? But no one expected them to because they had been struggling before that. So so kudos to the Braves front office for seeing the positive regression possibility there as well. Um, so yeah, that's but that's probably a more extreme case. You don't always get that fortunate unfortunately <laughs> most of you know most of the time there's a human factor of i gotta change teams i gotta leave my family where am i going i don't know the guys you know and sometimes the regression is negative because of that right because of those sort of human things that they go through um so it's not surprising um <clears throat> and i will also say you know the pitching if you just sort of look at the pitching for a second with guys like you know giolito and lorenzen I mean, to your point, there really wasn't much else. People, all the teams have been struggling with injuries. If you look at the Dodgers, if you look at, you know, just about everybody, um, you know, they'd all had rotation issues. And so I think the point is even more sort of underscored with, well, at least we get a guy who can sort of hang us in the game, you know, rather than the the guy from AAA who can't, you know. So it's it's that calculation as well. It's like, okay, it's still worth it because we need the pitching. Right. And, you know, even if it is a guy who's somewhat comparable to that triple A fringe replacement level type guy, you know, it's at least another dart throw. It's another guy you have in line before you get to the guys who are definitely sub replacement level. And looking at a team like the Dodgers, where I think we compared their deadline to that Braves deadline of just picking up some guys that you think are due for positive regression. It hasn't quite worked out. Kike Hernandez, Ahmed Rosario and Lance Lynn have all been pretty close to replacement level collectively and they were hoping for bounce backs from one if not all of those guys so that's not ideal and that's just a reminder that hey you can't always catch that lightning in a bottle you know sometimes a bad season is just a bad season sometimes you need a larger season for it to regress back to the career norms and sometimes you know a guy's just cooked you know Lance Lynn might just be done unfortunately he might not be he might bounce back next year with a larger sample yeah. new change of scenery type thing whatever 
but he also might just be done and you can't know unless you unless you find out i guess unless you take that gamble yeah and you know there was a lot you know we we questioned that deal at the time like oh, they gave up a decent pitching prospect in nick mistrini maybe they overpaid a little bit and that's what our model showed and i think so far, it looks like they did overpay because, and the thought was, okay, we can unlock something. We see something in Lance Lynn that we can fix. Hasn't really been fixed. He's actually been just as bad as he was with the White Sox and some, some categories worse. So, eh, sometimes it just is what it is. I will give them Joe Kelly in his return to Los Angeles has been pretty solid mm-hmm. for them. And that could be a difference maker in yeah. the, uh, in the postseason. But I think if, if you, if when they made that trade or, or were going to make that trade, you told them, yeah, Lynn's going to be the same guy, but Kelly's going to be solid for you. I don't know if they would have made that exact trade still. I, I think they might've had a little bit and brought the prospect price down. I think they were really counting on Lynn being, you know, not necessarily an ace or anything, but a guy who could provide valuable impact in the back of the rotation and help lengthen things for them. And he hasn't done that. Yeah. Well, Let's move on to the people who are making these decisions. There's been a whole lot of front office movement. Um, It's that time of year, I guess, for all these disappointing teams who are out of the race and maybe expected to be in the race and a whole lot of guys shuffling around. We're only going to see more of it for the next handful of weeks as we get into the postseason and offseason here. Um, Let's start with arguably the highest profile, maybe not the highest profile, but certainly the most dramatic was the Red Sox firing Heimblum. And there's a whole lot to unpack here because there's this is the this is just a complicated decision and a complicated situation where it's like who is actually to blame here? To what extent is Heimblum being scapegoated for ownership limitations? And to what extent is this actually, you know, indicative of he took on this really high profile job and just didn't get the job done regardless of any ownership limitations um there's a whole lot to unpack here there's a very very good chris cotillo breakdown for mass live i'll go ahead and link that in the show notes but he has a lot of good like insider notes here on some of the different perspectives of heimblum and his decision-making and sometimes, I guess, inability to pull the trigger and basically how, you know, he, he, when he was hired by the Red Sox, it was pretty universally praised throughout the industry of it being another Andrew Friedman situation where, you know, small market, smart raised guy joins big market juggernaut for Friedman. It was the Dodgers and for Heimblum here, it's the Red Sox. And you go, Oh God, this guy is going to combine all the smart raise things with a big budget and dominate the league. And Friedman has done that with the Dodgers and Bloom did not do that with the Red Sox. And so part of that, the Red Sox didn't quite spend as much as the Dodgers have. Part of that, Heimblum maybe hasn't been quite as aggressive or made the types of moves that the Dodgers have. And part of it's just that his teams haven't ended up in a position at the deadline to make those big moves, but there's, there's a lot of different angles to this. I'm going to go ahead and pause and and try and collect my thoughts into a, into a few points to make here. And I'll, I'll let you give your take here, John. Yeah. So when that happened, I have to say there was a part of me that was surprised and a part of me that wasn't. So the part of me that was surprised was in many respects, I'm, Bloom has been doing 
what the Red Sox asked him to do. You know, he, he they asked him to trade Mookie. He did trade Mookie, and he got you know fair value for it, plus for it. He got uh, he they asked him to rebuild the farm because what they really wanted him to do was make the whole system more sustainable. And so he was on a mission to do that. He was rebuilding the farm. He was making smart decisions. He wasn't, you know, he had to keep in mind he had to pick up the pieces from Dave Dombrowski who had traded away most of their prospects and kind of left things in shambles. And so he had to kind of say, okay, I'm going to rebuild the farm. I'm going to sort of create this sort of sustainable model. Um, and by and large, he did that. Now, typically when you do that, you need a little bit more time to see it come to fruition. And this is why I was surprised. Like he, it, it was going that direction. He's got some good prospects coming up, and is already that have already come up as well. So you know, I would have thought they would have given him one more year to kind of see that through because that's really what they asked him to do, and he did it. That's the part of me that was surprised. Like they cut him off a little too soon. Like it was really a five or six year rebuild, and they cut him off after year four. Uh, so that doesn't seem fair. The part of me that was not surprised was we have questioned his moves at the trade the last two trade deadlines because he, he seemed a little bit tentative, a little bit like, yeah, maybe I'll do this, maybe I'll do that. Like left hand does this, right hand does that. Let me, like make up your mind, find a direction, right? And he seemed a little, and, and I think the Mass Live article uh, that you referenced sort of points this out, um, that he was a little too tentative. And the Red Sox are a big market team. And they want to focus on making, obviously, the, the major league team competitive. They hear grumbling from the fans. The attendance starts to wane. And, like, that's on – That's you've got to do that, too. So he was a little too focused on building the farm and the operation and a little wobbly on, like, building a winner in Boston at the major league level. I get that. So I think that was the determination. And, you know, you could go either way on it. So the part of me that was not surprised would go, like, yeah – yeah, he was a little wishy-washy on, on that front. So I think, but I think it's a really interesting case study in, you know, how to be a smart front office leader. Like most of them are uh, graded on their ability to kind of get bang for the buck, but they also, you know, they can't ignore winning at the major league level because that's part of the job. So you can't just look at asset value increase like we do often. You have to look at did you win and so and and those are shifting tides sometimes the owner wants you to look at one sometimes the owner wants you to look at the others and sometimes it's the owner's not clear which one he's focused on at the moment so i think he was caught in a maelstrom a little bit of that as well so it's it's a it's a tough call uh i don't necessarily agree with it um but you know i'm part surprised part not surprised for those reasons right and it's interesting how it parallels to the previous red sox regimes where Ben Charrington had plenty of flaws when running the team, but he did work up an excellent young farm system. And Dave Dombrowski came in and was able to kind of reap the benefits of that and go all mm -hmm. in. And, and, you know, he maybe gets a little bit more credit than he deserves. And Sherrington maybe gets a little less credit than he deserves because Sherrington really set the foundation for that. I think you could be looking at something similar here where the next guy who comes in, if there's a great Red Sox team built around Tristan Casas and Sedan Rafaela and Marcelo Meyer and Brian Bayo, and, and even Rafael Devers, who Bloom extended, if that's the core of the next great Red Sox team, then that's as much of Heim Bloom as anyone else. Obviously, there's another step to that. You can't just build a core. You have to build around it. And that's what the next guy presumably is going to be tasked with doing. But... You, you got to give Bloom credit where it's due for doing that part of the job really, really well, all things considered. Um, 
going back to that Chris Cotillo article, the most interesting nugget to me from it, and I'll go ahead and quote directly from it. Um, One longtime baseball person with Boston connections made an interesting point shortly after the firing. Within the game, Bloom is thought to have a fatal flaw, indecisiveness, that may have prohibited him from being able to truly get the Red Sox over the hump. And then skipping down a little bit, there's a perception throughout baseball that Bloom has to win every move, leading to analysis paralysis. Case in point, multiple sources with knowledge of Bloom's thinking have noted that he had privately obsessed over his two major free agent expenditures, Story and Yoshida, in each of the last two seasons, constantly wondering if he made the right moves. It's clear that those expenditures of $140 million and $90 million respectively made Bloom uncomfortable. So that's really interesting. That That's indicative to me of a guy who really didn't maybe didn't adjust to being with the Red Sox. Maybe he stayed too much in yeah. his raise bucket of yeah. if we misfire, it could be catastrophic for us. We need to make sure every decision we make is a value add because every value, we don't, we don't have a margin of error to lose. And the Red Sox should have that margin of error, you know, with, with the market that they're in, with their history, with their historical budgets, they should have enough margin of error to say like, this, this looks like a good deal. Maybe it's not a slam dunk, but it's going to improve our team. Let's do it. And maybe he just couldn't break himself out of that mindset. And that could have, you know, especially going into an off season where, yes, you've got some young pieces coming up, but there's a lot of questions on this roster still, a lot of different directions you could go, and a huge pressure to build a contender after a handful of disappointing years. Maybe they just decided that a guy with that kind of mentality that's going to labor over each of these moves and only make the ones that are decisively good for his team, maybe that's just not the type of guy that they want running the show. Yeah, uh, I I think that hits the nail on the head, frankly. Um, Like I said, he was wishy-washy at the deadlines. I remember the uh, 2022 deadline where he was buying and selling and people were confused. And I was confused. And I remember we were talking about it uh, that day. And, and, you know, so it's, it doesn't surprise me if he just what – what it's really saying is it's not quite in his DNA to make the big, you know, overspend commitment. He's like he's, he, he wants to win every deal, right? He wants to uh, always have a value mindset, and, and we applaud that here because that's what we look at, obviously. But we also look at, yeah, sometimes you got to lose a trade or lose a free agent signing in order to win on the field. And so, uh, and I think that's what the Red Sox ownership is saying. Like we need, maybe not, you know, I don't know if they're going to swerve back to another Dabrowski type uh, that's going to clear out the farm just to go all in. Um, But I think they're going to skew a little bit more um, with, okay, let's win. Let's prioritize winning on the field a little bit more. Like they can overspend a little bit to do that. And sometimes Friedman does that in LA too. Um, so he, he doesn't mind overpaying sometimes, as we just talked about with Lance Lynn. So, because he understands that sometimes the market will, 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 that's what you have to do to get the guy you want. So I think Boston wants somebody with that mentality as well. Yeah, certainly. Um, the other kind of interesting element to this from this article is the Alex Cora of it all. Um, apparently there was some tension occasionally between Bloom and Cora, some disagreements, um, Obviously, Cora being the field manager and having this hyper-competitive nature wanted Bloom to push more strongly, be more aggressive. There was some clubhouse uh, discourse when Heim Bloom didn't make a trade for Carlos Santana in 2022, and then he was traded to the Mariners. Um, During the last deadline, like you said, there was 
some discourse there and some some people very upset with Christian Vasquez being traded at the time, even though, you know, from a value perspective, made a lot of sense. And in hindsight, looks like a really good trade. They traded half a season of this catcher on a team that wasn't going anywhere for two decent prospects, Emmanuel Valdez and William Abreu, who both have, you know, popped up a little bit since that trade and look like they might be big league pieces. So on paper, great trade, but didn't necessarily sit well with the manager or with the players in the clubhouse. And then the weird additional element to this is like, there's some buzz in this article and from other sources about Cora heading to the front office and whether that's right now, whether that's as like a top baseball ops guy or in some other role, not clear at all. We still need to wait and see how things shake out here, but Cora I uh, he seems like he has a lot of power in this organization to kind of do what he wants. You know, they've really committed to the guy multiple times, even after the whole Astros sign ceiling scandal suspension that he received. They recommitted to him, brought him back. And it seems like he, you know, it, it's not necessarily typical for the manager, especially a manager who isn't like super long tenured to kind of rank above the baseball ops guy in the organization, but it seems like that's the case with Cora right now, that he's really the face of the team, at least from like an ownership perspective, and that they're really committed to him and they're going to kind of work around him, whether that means promoting him into the front office and giving him a stronger voice there or just valuing his opinion and his perspective and his desires when they do make this, this head baseball ops hire to replace Bloom, whichever that means, it sounds like it's all going to go through Cora. It's interesting because Chris Cotillo also just published a new article about that. And one of the nuggets is that assistant GM uh, Eddie Romero is, according to Cora, the guy making all the roster decisions and stuff. So Eddie's the point man. He's in charge of transactions. The other sort of interesting twist here is that Brian O'Halloran, who was the GM, was let go but then brought back as executive vice president of baseball operations, which makes no sense to me. I mean – it's just a title change. Is he still doing the job? And if Cora's right that Eddie Romero's doing the job, what the heck is Brian O'Halloran doing? I don't get it. Um, and Cora says Eddie's been the guy the whole time. So it's weird. <laughs> I can't figure it out. Uh, so uh, I, I don't even know where to start with this one. Generally speaking, and, and you obviously know this, John, but generally speaking, <laughs> we are well past the era of clear-cut that's the GM. He does all the roster stuff and that's it. Right. Yeah. There used to be a time where it's like, okay, these are the 30 GMs. They're the ones pulling the strings. And that is way behind us. You know, there's different structures in each front office, different fictitious titles that are created to, to give a guy a promotion and keep a quote unquote promotion and keep him within your organization, even though he's doing the same thing, at least from an outside perspective. And so it's really hard to keep track now with, how each team runs and what each position actually means in a given organization. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm just as lost as you are on that. I don't know if this means Brian O'Halloran is going to be more involved or less involved. I yeah. don't know. It, it's tough to, re- you know, you'd imagine if they're looking to shake things up that he would be in more of an advisory role in this spot. But like you said, it's, it's a promotion. It's, it's a vice president of baseball but, operations. Uh, so yeah. Who knows? So my simple mind says, okay, he was the number two guy to bloom. 
and then he was gone, but now he's back, and his title suggests he's going to be the number two guy who to whoever comes in next. But now his latest article says, well, no, he's kind of off to the side, and this Eddie Romero guy is kind of acting like the GM. So, like, it's a mess. Um, but look, I've also, you know, we also know that it's a relationship business, right? So, um, like, a lot of ins- uh, assistant GMs will have relationships with other ones GM, and they're they're empowered to make deals. Uh, amongst each other now the the guys at the top of the pyramid obviously oversee and approve those deals but a lot of the relationships and a lot of the day-to-day stuff does get handled by the assistant gm so i I get it from that perspective yeah certainly um i think my last note here not necessarily related to the move itself but just kind of looking back at bloom's red sox tenure is it looks like I don't know if this is necessarily, you know, just looking at the numbers and everything, his best move, but his most memorable move, and I think most indicative of how he worked as a front office executive in Boston, was the Hunter Renfro deal, where somehow he he traded away Jackie Bradley Jr. Oh, wait, no, I have this backwards. He traded away Hunter Renfro yeah. to Milwaukee, and Renfro at the time was... You know, kind of, kind of the player we described him as earlier. You know, a little bit above league average offensively, kind of league average defensively. A player worth starting, but starting to get a little bit expensive in his arbitration years. They traded him away to Milwaukee, and in exchange, they got back you know former Gold Glove center fielder for them, Jackie Bradley Jr., whose career had really tailed off at that point. He was a well underwater contract. And in reacquiring him, they also tacked on two prospects, David Hamilton and Alex Benelis. And it was very, you know, that was the type of move we expected to see more of. It was a very Dodgers move, right? Of, And I guess a recent year's Mets move since the Cohen era. Like, let's leverage our financial power here, take an underwater contract and buy prospects. And instead of tanking, instead of trading away veterans at, at the deadline and, and being out of it and getting early draft picks... This is how we'll part of how we'll build our farm is by leveraging our our financial willpower, and that really seemed like maybe the only time that that Boston made a move like that during Bloom's tenure. But like that that just showed like the kind of the potential for things he could have done, and really maybe didn't capitalize on as much. And again, it goes back to the question of was that his choice? Was that an ownership thing? Was he working up against a budget that was lower than maybe? we we would have expected i don't know but that was the type of quality move that we expected to see more of from him and that one interestingly enough was made right before the lockout like like at midnight like it was announced That's at like 11 right, yeah. right before the lockout they squeezed it in and so you know, I don't know if that's significant or not, but they they wanted to make that deal enough that they squeezed it in just then because they knew that the clock was ticking. So, um, but yeah, I agree with a larger point, which is yeah, he should have taken on more bad contracts to buy prospects because you can kind of get a win win from Boston's perspective that way if the money doesn't matter as much to them if they can afford it, and so Heim can Heim Bloom can rebuild the farm a little bit, and and oh by the way, well the problem there was Bradley didn't really have much field value because he was done, and we know that now. Um, but if you had taken on somebody with field value who's just overpaid, if he'd have made more deals like that, that would have been a smarter way to go as well. Yeah, certainly. I this is kind of you know the timing's a little bit better in Bloom, in Bloom's favor, but it's a little bit reminiscent of you know James Click being let go by the Astros, where 
Yeah. He's going to catch on somewhere. Somebody is going to be very excited to bring him into their front office in whatever role that is. You know, if, if you're the A's or a similar team, like you want this guy running everything. He, he's perfect for that. Um, granted, the A's are their own mess. We can maybe we'll, we'll, we'll see if we get to that this episode. But um, yeah, he, he's going to catch on somewhere. He's going to continue to be a good executive good at what he does it just I, I think they expected him at the end of the day they expected him to adjust his style a bit to kind of meet the middle with with some of the traits that kind of come with the job in Boston and he never did he got stuck in that race mindset and it just didn't didn't work and that makes you wonder if he does now like if his future career is really just that kind of guy Right. Okay. He's a great, he's great, like bang for the buck guy. He's going to increase asset value. He's going to look at, you know, winning deals, but maybe he's not a number one in the sense that he doesn't have that sort of Dombrowski quality of let's go on when we need to. Uh, so I don't know if he'll get a number one, another number one type of job. Maybe he's going to be a number two here and there. We'll see. But maybe if that's the industry perspective on him, then he might get stuck in that number two role. And I mean, maybe. You know, he's still young, still learning, still a relatively new executive here. Still plenty of time for him to learn. Maybe it's a case of he thought he had a larger window with Boston than he did, you know, kind of misread the room, misread, you know, obviously the public is, there's always going to be high public scrutiny for anyone in Boston, but maybe he thought ownership backed him up more than they did and and were on board with kind of his longer term plan in a Mm -hmm. way that they weren't. So, yeah, uh, yeah, interested to see what comes next there. Um you know, there, there is one spot that could have an opening up near the top of that front office and kind of fits into this mold of, you know, a, a smaller market team that needs to make some of these value add moves. And that's the Milwaukee Brewers, mm-hmm. because guess what? Yeah. Shockingly, David Stearns, he's, he's going to be running the Mets now. Nobody saw that coming except for everybody. Nope. Um, nobody saw Blind that coming. <laughs> um, so this finally happened. I guess it's not official official yet because Stearns is technically still under contract with the Brewers in this kind of advisory role that he stepped down into at the beginning of this season. When he did that, everyone was like, oh, like he's saying he wants to step away and be with his family. Is that real? Or is that I'm going <laughs> to take a back seat a little bit for the year so I can go run the Mets next year. And uh, yeah, it's that one. He's, he's, he's running the Mets yeah. now. Um, Worst kept secret in baseball. <laughs> absolutely. Um, I, we, we talked about this fit before. Stearns, I believe he was a Mets intern early on in his career and a Mets fan. He's from Manhattan. Uh, it just really seems like the, the Mets have been eyeing this guy for a reason, right? He's their guy. He's very smart. He's He always has been. He's very, very well respected within the industry. And he's exactly the kind of guy you want to pair with a Cohen budget, especially at this kind of tumultuous point in the Mets franchise history, I guess, of they just tried to spend everything. It didn't work. Let's reset and figure out what our actual direction is, what our actual timeline of contending is and how we're going to get there. He seems like the perfect guy to, to write the ship and lead it in the right direction from here. And as opposed to what we were just saying about Bloom, David Stearns can be bold when he needs to be bold. 
He signed Lorenzo Cain to a big contract. He traded multiple prospects for Christian Yelich in a huge deal that they won over time, no question. He will be bold. You know, he was bold earlier on when he picked up Josh Hader and other talent when he was when the Brewers were were in an earlier phase when they were kind of trying to acquire prospects and build the farm. And he made smart trades there. And then he made smart trades and free agent signings when he needed to make the team a winner. And he did that. So he's he checks all the boxes. And the only th box he hasn't really checked is, can he run a huge market team and a huge budget? All indications are that he can, but well, that's the only thing you know left because he was in Milwaukee, obviously doing that small mar smaller market team. And so this is where you say, oh, okay, now we get the smarts and the money together. So, and but it seems like he's more the right guy to do it. Um, you know, one thing I don't see anybody or hear anybody talking about is Billy Epler. If you look at it from his perspective. I mean, he's been the GM, and he knew, because they were clear about it, he knew that they didn't see him as the top guy, but they still entrusted him to make a lot of decisions, and obviously he did, and some very big ones. And so, like, you wonder, like, is he going to stick around or not? Uh, is Stern's going to want him as his number two? Or should, like, it feels awkward, doesn't it? Like, yeah, I got passed over. It's weird, right? <laughs> like, what do you do if you're Billy Epler? Yeah, that is a good point. And you kind of wonder how involved exactly Cohen was up to this point, right? You know, obviously, very, very vocal owner, very, very rich owner who's willing to dump as much money in, into this team as he has to to build a winner. Um, but with some of these big profile moves, you know, it, it almost brings you back to like a like an Artie Moreno kind of mindset of like, I wonder, or, or I guess... Um, was that Illich with, with the uh, Tigers where yeah. it was, you know, all of the big contracts went straight through him. And I wonder if there was any of that going on with Cohen. And I wonder if Stearns is going to help kind of balance that. I wonder if it was the previous relationship was maybe, and this is pure speculation, um, but previously it was maybe the big ones go through Cohen and some of the smaller transactional day-to-day -day or or you just, you know, mid-roster type moves, that would be Epler. And so maybe it's not much of a change for Epler at all. Maybe he'll stay in that mindset and advising on some of the bigger moves. But now Stearns kind of takes over the reins and, and full ownership and kind of pushes Cohen into more of, I guess, of an advisory and, and bank of Steve Cohen type role that he probably <laughs> is a better fit for than making actual baseball decisions. Again, pure speculation, but that is one way i could see it working out without it being too much of a conflict with epler but i agree especially you know epler's been around the game for a long time he's been an executive for a long time i at some point here he would want to run things on his own right not not just be the second in command forever yeah i mean he was that guy with the angels although <laughs> interestingly enough he had our Artie moreno breathing down his neck there too so um, but he did. He was the guy who signed Shohei Otani, who he won the Otani sweepstakes back in the day, um, and he's he's had an accomplished career. And you've got to give him credit for stabilizing the Mets front office when it was in turmoil, when they had one guy after another get busted or leave, or you know, it, it was it was a mess. And he at least provided some stability. And then you know they had a winning record last year, not so much this year, but at least he was the stable guy. And yeah, those those two big trades with uh, Scherzer and Verlander. You wonder how much he was involved and how much it was Cohen. I smelled Cohen's footprints, uh, fingerprints all over those just because of the money aspect. And 
and also Steve Cohen has been active on Twitter and he'll sometimes tweet something like, oh, what should we do next? So who should we sign? As if he was like the guy doing it. So it does make you wonder. And so in his case, can he step back a little bit from that? I suppose he can because now he has full confidence in his number one guy, whereas he probably didn't before. Um, so I think it'll sort itself out. Um, still not convinced Billy Epler will stick around, but we'll see. Yeah, that that's, you know, I see a strong argument for Cohen feeling comfortable enough, at least in the early goings, to step back. And, and you know, if things go off the rails quick, then he might he might have a short trigger here. He might be right back into the thick of it. But being Stearns, being the guy that they've coveted for years now and just seems like the most perfect fit you could imagine of, you know, Cohen, the longtime Mets fan owning the team, and Stearns, the longtime Mets fan running operations as one of the most respected respected executives in the game. Like, that just seems like such a perfect fit that, like, if you're going to go all out and get this guy, you got to let him run things. And, you know, you can give your opinions. You can push him in a certain direction and say, hey, we, we've got all this money. Go ahead and spend it. But at the end of the day, if you've, if you've got this perfect fit, if you've got your perfect guy, you got to let him run the show versus, you know, if they hadn't been able to get Stearns and they got, say, a Bloom type, not, not him specifically, because I don't, if he didn't work in Boston, he's not going to work in New York. But if it was anybody like that, that wasn't necessarily a perfect fit, I think you might've seen Cohen continue to kind of run the show there for better or for worse. Yeah. One other point I will bring up, which is, um, you know, he originally, when he bought the team, he brought in Sandy Alderson to kind of advise him. And Alderson, obviously, he's wily old vet. He said, basically, you know, you got to rebuild the farm. The farm's terrible. Don't sell your prospects. Uh, use your money. And so he did that for the most part. He got good advice from Alderson. Um, and I'm sure Alderson was whispering in his ear, like, get a guy who can really build a sustainable model. And he probably helped say, yeah, Stearns is your guy. Just wait for him. So I I'm 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 sensing that that was going on behind the scenes here as well. Yeah, it's kind of funny. It took them a long time, but it really seems like they are pretty settled here. I mean, maybe maybe we see some movement with Epler. I don't know if they're totally committed on the management front, uh, but at least at least at the very top, they're settled in to Cohen yeah. and Stearns for the foreseeable future and it's the Mets anything can happen there all it takes is one little slip up and whoops this guy got thrown in jail and now they don't have David Stearns anymore not not to say that David Stearns is anybody anything negative about his character uh, but we've seen yeah. it in the past with this organization the the craziest things will go wrong and ruin their best laid plans but it really seems like they have the pair that they've wanted that Mets fans have wanted and from here they just gotta perform you know they gotta they gotta pull the right strings yeah all of that being said i do think the future is bright for mets fans i do think they're finally settling in they got a smart guy running things they've got money they've got a plan he's going to bring a, a plan and so i think he's going to build a good model there so i think there's a lot to look forward to for mets fans they finally got an owner who could at least you know uh do his job which is sign the checks and now they've got a top guy do his job, which is basically build a, a strong foundation and a, and a strong team. And it's pretty wild, you know, looking at the organization from a player's perspective. If you sub in almost any other owner or any other baseball ops guy running the team, then it's a totally different story, right? Like, the, the big league roster is a whole lot of large long-term contracts. 
and some of them are working, some of them might not. You have a Pete Alonso who is entering his final season, and he's looking like one of these guys where you might have to overpay him to keep him just because he does all the traditional stuff so well, the homers and RBIs, but doesn't really provide much value everywhere else. So there's that question. There's this like total lack of a big league rotation right now, and you know, all of these expenses, the, the expenses they're continuing to pay to Scherzer and Verlander, they have a solid farm, but there's some young guys like Brett Beatty who have gotten in the big leagues and haven't quite shown it yet. Same deal with Mark Vientos and their kind of next wave of guys are probably another year or two out. So if you were to slap in like, I don't know, you don't even have to drop it down to like the worst owners and the worst GMs. But if you if you brought in an average GM and average owner here to this situation, I think we'd be talking about it and looking at it a lot differently. We'd be like, oh boy, they're in a weird spot. You know, they got to offload some of this money, but then you still have like a Lindor and a Nimmo who are productive and really good players despite the money and despite, you know, heading into the wrong side of 30 um, and, and they have to figure out this Alonzo situation and they have to figure out their timeline. It's not very clear and they don't have any pitching. Like we would be looking at all of these things as negatives, but because it's this perfect combination of Cohen endless money and Stearns, like really knowing how to run things and really earning confidence of, of people across baseball, you can start to view these things as almost a strength and say like, look, they already have these big league pieces solidly in place that are going to be solid contributors they have pete alonzo where like they can afford to overpay him because they're the mets because they're steve cohen and that locks up a certain number of positions and suddenly you're only looking at a handful of holes and look at that you have solid prospects coming up and yeah they need to figure out the pitching but look at that it's a pretty strong starting pitching market this upcoming offseason yamamoto is looking like he might be the he might he might get the largest contract of any overseas pitcher we've ever seen. He might he might top the Masahiro Tanaka contract. He's just been that good over in the NPB. And there's been a lot of buzz connecting him to the Mets. So it, it seems like the stars are aligning in like a great way for them. It's not a perfect situation. They would have hoped to contend this year. They would have hoped to still have a healthy and effective Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander leading this team next season. But given the hand that they've been dealt to this point, they're in a pretty perfect spot for them. They are. They've got money and they've got brains. And that's that's what you need, right? So, and the two working together in harmony will be even better. So, um, you know, it may not be, as they've indicated, like 2024 may not be a, a go all in kind of year, but it will be a really significant turning point year, I think, for the organization. So they'll use... Um, both of those things to their capacity. They'll use Cohen's money to sign some smart free agents and then use Stern's brains to kind of set it all up for the long term and make some bold decisions here and there. Um, the details, we'll see. I mean, maybe they resign Alonzo, maybe they don't, but I, mean, I think they're in good hands. Um, maybe they sign, uh, you know, maybe they sign Otani, maybe they sign, you know, Blake Snell. They'll figure it out. They've got, they've got all... It's all working in their favor now. They'll figure it out one way or another, and they'll put it together. It sounds like it's mostly going to be like 2025 on us, their big window, but we'll see. You said Blake Snell. We're going to need to talk about him this offseason. I have some thoughts, but yeah. that's maybe not a thing okay. for this episode. <laughs> right. um, my Robbie Ray alarm is going off. That That's all I'll say. Um, yeah. All right. So moving on to the next front office move, which we will have significantly less to say about, <laughs> but the Tigers have named Jeff Greenberg, their general manager. Um, I saw this notification come in 
uh, from a Jeff Passan tweet, and I went, who? And that was about as far as I went with it. And uh, he is, apparently he, he worked with um, Scott Harris, who is currently the Tigers president of baseball ops. Uh, the two of them worked together with the Cubs. And Greenberg stepped away just for the past year and a half, two years, um, to help run the Chicago Blackhawks in the NHL as one of their associate general managers. Um, and now he returns to baseball to, again, be working with Scott Harris, now running the Tigers, though. Um, it's hard to say how significant of a move this will be. This is kind of what we were alluding to earlier with, like, the lines are really blurred over who's running what in situations like this and what impact a general manager can have on an organization. But I think if you're looking at the Tigers and the spot that they're in, like, any brain talent that they can that they can bring in is is a plus for them i think this is an upgrade over alavila who seemed kind of set in his own ways and like really wasn't getting the job done i yeah i i think this is an improvement for them it's hard to look at it as any, look at it as anything else but i'm also not entirely sure um what their future looks like before this move or after this move all right, I have something to say about this. Uh, in uh, a little bit of insight into this, um, because I've looked into hockey as a possible next move for us. Um, hockey is in bad need, dire need of analytics, and so I knew that the Chicago Blackhawks, in particular, were looking at hiring a baseball executive who understood analytics to help them get given uh, get them an advantage so there was a lot of talk about that of like oh yeah let's see those baseball guys know analytics let's bring one of those guys in so that's what they did and so they offered him a sweet deal and so he said okay i'll try it um and you know it's been happened it's happened before where you know a baseball executive went to football for example the guy in the cleveland browns was that paul podesta i think um yeah so so it was one of those situations so basically he's an analytics guy he came up as kind of the, you know, he worked with Scott Harris in the past, so they have a good rapport, and he's really sharp with analytics. Yeah, that's that's really good insight that I certainly don't have as a, you know, I'm not anti-hockey, but I, I haven't been able to get into it. So that that's good insight. And yeah, anything that'll point the Tigers more in that direction, and honestly, anything that will give the Tigers a direction at this point is probably a good thing for them. You know, they have... They have some sparks to look forward to, you know, Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green look like they're starting to settle in as big leaguers. You know, they're maybe not breaking out in some massive way, but they're starting to be positive big league contributors and you hope they can continue to grow from there. And then on the pitching side, they're getting a lot of guys back from injury. Tariq Skubal has looked pretty good this season since coming back from his own injury and Casey Mize and Matt Manning are, are starting to reestablish themselves as well. So, you know, there's... There's some reasons for optimism here. I wouldn't be penciling in the Tigers to make the playoffs at any time in the next couple of years, but um, there's there's some pieces in place here to start. There's a couple interesting names on the farm. There's there are some things to like here. This isn't a totally you know listless organization, um, but they do need all the help they can get, and it and it's good that Greenberg sounds like he'll be able to provide that. Yeah, I mean the. Look, the bad news for Tigers fans, as they well know, is that the rebuild failed, and Alavila didn't do it right. And you know, he didn't. He didn't. I don't know. It's weird because he he supposedly, you know, had had the scouting chops to have scouted talent, 
And aside from Green and maybe Torkelson, like you mentioned, a couple of pitchers, they really didn't get much out of that whole era of, of the rebuild. And so there's there's a couple of guys in the form, yeah, but it's it's kind of still kind of bleak after that. So, um, you know, well, maybe Mac Clark will one day become a star for them, but we'll, but they've got a long way to go, basically, to build that sort of longer, sustainable winning team. Um, they're a couple of years away from that, and so maybe Greenberg can help on the at least on the Atlantic uh, the analytics side. Yeah, one would hope. Um, sticking in the AL Central here, just a quick hit. The Guardians activated Shane Bieber from the injured list. Um, we had kind of, or at least I had written him off for this season. Uh, he had some forearm discomfort. MRI revealed elbow inflammation. That was back in July as we were kind of ramping up for the trade deadline, and it immediately took him off the market. And we talked about how tough of an outlook it was for him where he is going to be a free agent after the 2024 season. And if he were to undergo Tommy John surgery at any point this year, then that entirely takes him out for 2024. And then he's a free agent and the guardians get nothing for a guy who year after year was touted as like the top potentially available starter at the trade deadline. And, you know, in some seasons he, his performance and his metrics really lined up with that. And he really looked like an ACE. And in recent years, the velo declined, the strikeouts declined. He just hasn't been the same pitcher he used to be. And it's really, there's a very legitimate question of if he'll ever be that guy again, even after a surgery that theoretically gets him healthy, or if the decline is just inevitable with, with Bieber, um, you know, he could totally rewrite the story here. If he, you know, I, I'm not giving him any kind of a, any, any good odds on this whatsoever, but if he comes back in, it looks like he'll make one, maybe two starts. Um, and actually, since this is a September 21st article here, it is very possible that he made a start already and I missed it. So I'm going to look that up as I'm speaking here. Um, but if he's able to come back and make a solid start or two, uh, yes, he, he, he as I'm speaking, he, he did start against the Orioles. He went five innings, gave up five runs, four earned, one walk, five strikeouts. And I will try and pull up what his Vila was looking like for that start. But... Regardless, if he can make another strong start down the stretch, if his velo is back, if he is actually healthy, no issues, then that's kind of a game changer. And, you know, he's still certainly not the safest pitcher in the world since he has all of this in his background. But, um, yeah, it, it's good that he at least gets this chance, I guess, to reestablish himself here. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways it can go, some better than others, but we'll have to wait and see. I just worry about the arm, you know, you know more often than not when you when you have elbow issues and you take time off and hope it, that it re restores itself um it usually is a temporary panacea and then you end up having to have tommy john surgery or some variation of that at some point anyway so i i really feel like that's still kind of a uh, a cloud hanging over him no matter how he if he does well, great. Um, but I still got to feel like teams may be wary of him. Like I don't, we, we don't have him with any trade value at all right now. In fact, he's a little bit negative, but uh, for that reason, because, you know, that's a skit that, that tends to scare people off. And obviously he's been in decline otherwise as well. Well, I was able to pull it up on baseball savant and it looks like in this start yesterday. So uh, according to savant, at least Beaver's four seamer averaged 90.6 which is not good. His last start before going on the injured list, he averaged 92.2. .2. 
His lowest mark of the season was on April 4th. He averaged 90.3. So this is pretty much right in line with that. And it's really a consistent story across all of his pitches. His uh, his slider is was at a season low and, and honestly pretty close to a career low. His changeup, which, you know, is kind of different, but um, that was also pretty low. His cutter down in 86. So Velo isn't end-all be-all. Maybe he's just sorting himself out. But if we're looking at a guy who's been very, very concerning for a few years now because his Velo has been declining and then he misses time with a significant injury that could lead to Tommy John, comes back and his Velo is even lower... Let's just say I'm not inspired by this, no. and I I don't exactly have the most positive future outlook for Shane Bieber right now. No, he still seems like a mess. And, you know, good luck if the Guardians can fix him. I don't think he's tradable right now until some of that is clearer. You know, and that's never a good sign because there's always a strong correlation between Velo and arm health, uh, unfortunately. Um, you could throw Sandy Alcantara into that mix as well right now because he came back uh, with a rehab start and did not have the same velo and his arm hurt again. So um, this is not a good sign for any pitcher. That's a phenomenal transition, John, because that is the next topic I had pulled up was Sandy Alcantara. Um, so he kind of out of nowhere, I don't want to say out of nowhere because this is a guy who's just been a workhorse and throws really hard. And, and those two things, pitching a lot of innings, throwing really hard is a great way to get hurt. Um, generally speaking, pitching is a great way to get hurt, but specifically if you're going to do it in that manner. Um, but kind of out of nowhere, beginning of September, he got placed on the injured list with a UCL sprain and very concerning, obviously, given what we just said, that he throws a lot of innings, he throws hard and that's not good for you, but he came back and pitched four scoreless innings in a rehab start. And it's like, okay, he might be back. You know, his velo is pretty solid and, if if he's a huge difference maker, obviously in the long term for the Marlins, but especially this year where every win counts and they really need if they even if they do make the playoffs, they really need a guy like that to front their rotation. And it's like, okay, he's made this rehab start, he looks good. Maybe he needs one more, maybe he doesn't, maybe he's just jumping right back. And it turns out no. After that outing, he had some forearm tightness, some forearm soreness, and he got pulled off the rehab stint. He's going to stay on the injured list, and he's more than likely done for the season. Uh, we'll see if something weird happens and he can make it back for the postseason if they make it, but it really seems like he is just out for 2023 and hopefully not any further than that. But like you said, um, usually when there's smoke, there's fire with these kinds of things, and it could mean an extended outage for Alcantara while he rehabs. So just just a bummer, you know, Bieber and Alcantara, very different types of pitcher. But at the top of their games, they were two of the top guys in baseball and really, really fun to watch. And it's just always a bummer. Yeah. So I will add that uh, Alcantara signed an extension uh, at the end of 2021. So that takes him through 2027 with a club. Well, 26 with a club option for 27. So he's on a fixed contract. It's not a huge one. He's making 9 million in 24 and then 17 and 25. And again, in, in 26, 27 is 20 million. So those are, if he's an ACE, that's a bargain, which is why we had his, his value as positive, but it's really, um, you know, he's underperformance combined now with the injury has really kind of um, tanked his value. 
because if he's if he needs to have to have Tommy John surgery, that 2024 is wiped out. So now you're in the red, and then you know you maybe get a healthy pitcher back in 2025. I'm like jumping ahead. Obviously, we don't know this yet, but it's not looking good. And that's just a reminder of how volatile pitching is, right? And that it's not, it's never going to be as reliable of an investment as hitting. Where Alcantara, at the top of his game, you know, he was this guy who was leading the league in complete games and just it seemed like he was made out of rubber and he could just go out there and continue pumping 98 99 mile an hour sinkers for nine innings of shutout ball and really put the team on his back in this old school way that made him so appealing and entertaining and valuable to his team and he was locked up on this like kind of below market rate extension i mean i know he's in his pre-arb and arbitration years. So that's why those salaries are a little suppressed. But even in the most expensive years that started to cover free agent seasons, it was below free agent rates. And so it's like, wow, this guy should be so valuable and every team would want this guy. And that's true. But it's still, when you compare it to the most valuable hitters in baseball, he just can't get anywhere near that because there's so much more risk involved just by being a pitcher, let alone a pitcher who throws upper 90s and has all of these innings on his arm already and continues to push the limits in in both of those areas so if anything it's just that kind of reminder of there's there's a reason that if you go to kind of the top values on our website there's a reason that those are going to be pretty dominated by hitters yeah the one exception there is spencer strider who's been ridiculous so far and is on a a really cheap long-term contract um, and that's what the Braves like to do, and they're generally smart about it. And and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Strider because he looks like he's got a strong foundation and he's been very healthy so far. I do worry about him a little bit with that. Um, so that's my one caveat. Uh, he's the one guy that stands out as like, eh, that's a really good deal. Uh, yeah, or, or surrounded that, by position players. Yeah. <laughs> and that's because the, the risk creates scarcity, right? Where yeah, because it's so hard to get a guy like that you know a young ace who is healthy and consistent and dominant and under team control that's the unicorn right there like every team is chasing that and so if you have a guy who can be that guy and obviously you know everybody is one pitch away from they're missing a season and a half and their whole outlook just changed and that's what's so scary about it but if you have a guy that checks off all the boxes and the only one he doesn't check is that one inherent pitcher risk box He's going to get inflated. He's going to be super valuable. Every team is going to want that guy fronting their rotation and leading their organization. Um, And that's just how it works. And and they're going to be valued over some similarly elite hitters in similarly strong situations just because of scarcity. Yeah. And that's the weird thing with pitchers in general. (laughs) You know, it's like, you know, uh, blanking on what the exception is, but. you can't live with them, can't live without them. <laughs> I think that's what it is. Right, right. Everybody wants pitching. Everybody needs pitching. Everybody desires this like frontline ace that can just go in there and grab the ball and throw seven innings of shutout ball every day. But it's hard to put your money where your mouth is or your prospects where your mouth is when there's all these other question marks and, and snap your fingers and it could all be out the drain where looking at steven strasburg or, or there's there's hundreds of stories like that but. yeah which makes a guy like garrett cool for example all the more of a unicorn to use your phrase um 
because he's just been a workhorse and he's been really good and he's been worth the money, frankly, for these years. And they paid a lot of money. Yankees paid a lot of money for him, um, but it turned out to be like he's the one guy who seems to be earning it consistently year after year. Right. You know, before him, it was Scherzer with the Nationals who earned every penny on that contract and more. And now it looks like it's Cole. And so those guys do exist. It's just honestly like you, you can do all of the research you can do everything you want in it but at the end of the day it's kind of a crapshoot to find those guys especially since you know obviously we're working with a sample size of two here but both scherzer and uh and cole were somewhat late bloomers you know they didn't really become this dominant frontline guy that they always had the potential to be until you know their late-ish 20s and that's all it really takes you know Scherzer's still going to be a hall of famer and maybe this is a good time to to start talking about him as well in, in a less fortunate light. But um, Cole's on that Hall of Fame track right now, too, if he can keep this up for a few more years. Um, and it's it's really just kind of a crapshoot of, of finding which guy is going to hold up like that and be worth every dollar of it versus which guys, you know, in their best years, they'll be worth every penny and more. And then in their worst years, you might not see them pitch at all. So, um Transitioning over to Scherzer, though, some really disappointing news for him. He's unlikely to return this year. He has a Terrace Major strain. Um, I think I've heard of this this injury a couple times before. I think it's un it's it's not something where we should be concerned that he'll be going in for Tommy John in a month or anything like that. As as far as I'm aware, I could be wrong. I'm not a doctor, but it's a significant injury. It's going to put him on the injured list for the rest of the season, and he's apparently unlikely to be available for the playoffs either, which is a huge blow for the Rangers. Like he was their big move. They are continuing to slide in the standings and and have this really cold second half. And, you know, when you, when you pick up Scherzer in this big deal from the Mets and you're taking on money and giving up a solid prospect, you're, you know, it's nice that he's under team control in 2024, but you're really going for 2023 when you, you know, bird in the hand, you know who he is, you know he hasn't totally broken yet, which is going to happen eventually, he's getting into his 40s, you know what you have, and you know you're expecting to get less from him next year, and so when you're in that mindset, and the first year doesn't really go well for you, it ends like this, that's really disappointing, that's, I mean, that's the only way you can put it, it's, you know the risk was there, the risk was inherent, again, everybody knew that this is a guy who's in his late 30s, early 40s and being paid a lot of money and has already had some injury issues in recent years and some performance issues. And, you know, this isn't the Max Scherzer of five years ago. Everybody on the planet knew that. That's the reason he was you were able to acquire him the way that you did. But still a bummer. It's like it's like the DeGrom injury from earlier this season. Like everybody saw the risk, but the reward is so tantalizing that it's worth it. And unfortunately, in both cases, the the, the Rangers kind of got the worst case scenario so far. They did. Yet another reminder that Father Time is undefeated. <clears throat> I mean, Scherzer is really just declining with age. I mean, it seems obvious, right? And it happens to different people at different times, right? Verlander is kind of sort of still going, even though he's slightly older. Um, but he's, you know, not quite the same as well this year as he was last year when he was younger but you know he's gonna he's gonna get worse and worse as he gets older too this is no news um but it's clear in in, in Scherzer's case I mean I, you know you can feel bad for the Rangers for for getting kind of the worst case scenario from from him as well as from DeGrom but hey you know they they knew the risk when they took it so you know 
you know, it, it is what it is. And for whatever it's worth, they're getting the best case scenario from Seeger and Semyon. Those two have been incredible for them, probably beating any projections that anyone yeah. had. Yeah. Um, obviously, Seeger missed some time this year, but if he hadn't missed time and if Shohei Otani didn't exist, he would probably be your AL MVP. Like, he's been so good. Um, and that's a that's a big hit for both of them. And I guess another reminder that hitting just might be a little safer than pitching. Well, I'll use that as a transition point to talk about Shohei Otani, which we have done many times in the past. And this is just a bit of an update to, I, I think, what we all knew was coming. Um, so he was shut down for the rest of the season, citing his oblique strain, uh, which makes sense. He was seemed like he was playing through it a little bit down the stretch. And as soon as, you know, the Angels totally fell out of it, no reason for him to continue to push it. He has some money to make this offseason, why would he risk injuring himself further for a team that's totally out of it? And at the same time, by shutting himself down, he was able to undergo elbow surgery. Now, the type of surgery, unknown. They've been super vague about it publicly, which is interesting. Um, you figure at some point he's going to have to let teams know as a free agent like what surgery was performed, what his real expectation is, so that they can make their offers to him accordingly. But for now, all we know is that he underwent elbow surgery to repair the issue and, quote, reinforce the healthy ligament in place while adding viable tissue for the longevity of the elbow. That's uh, from Dr. Neil Elitrash. And what what the, the expectation, at least as of now, is he'll be hitting on opening day of 2024 and he'll be hitting and pitching in 2025, which was kind of what we were looking at as the best case outcome right the one caveat being like hey this is the guy's second time with a ucl injury and needing surgery is he really going to be good to go opening day or should he take it a little easier this first season for now sounds like he's full speed ahead is that you know kind of posturing since he's about to be a free agent and doesn't want to sell himself short early on i don't know is that the most likely scenario? Is that the most advisable scenario for the long-term health of his elbow? Again, I don't know. Not a doctor. But that's the information we have so far. And it just continues to make what was already going to be the most interesting free agent like decision and discourse in recent history. It just gets even more fascinating by the day. So I've learned a lot about injuries reading I've recommended this newsletter in the past uh, under the knife by will carroll is a new, is a substack uh newsletter and his specialty is is baseball injuries and so he goes into quite a bit of depth on the otani situation in his last couple of newsletters uh one of the interesting things i've learned is that there are multiple variations of like it's not just tommy john surgery is not just one thing and like it's not just replacing the ligament there's all kinds of variations now now, he had the Tommy John surgery a couple of years ago um, by the same doctor, Ella Trache. So he went back to him. Uh, but this time it's slightly different. Uh, like a, there's some sort of, um, I forget what, like a brace repair or something. Anyway, and then and then uh, in, in the doctor's uh, statement, he said something about, you know, healthy tissue, needing to, to put healthy tissue in there. So like the whole thing sort of in, in Will Carroll's mind was like, Okay, which is it? <laughs> is it a traditional Tommy John? Is it this other brace repair thing? Or is it some weird combination of both? All of that, not to get too far into the specifics, but all that means something because it means what are you getting from Otani next year and the year after? That's, we don't know yet. Um, because if it's one, if it's like traditional Tommy John, 
you know he's out for 12 to 18 months on the pitching side. If it's the other one, it could be a little bit sooner. And so that's going to affect his price tag. So that's the part that's not totally clear. And even Will Carroll's like, I, I can't figure out which one it is. So, um, uh, but I think the base case, having said all that, is still like most teams will look at it as, okay, he's not pitching in 2024. We think he'll be okay in 2025. But he's had, let's say, you know, one way or another, pitchers with two Tommy Johns, you know, it's not a good sign. Typically, they're not quite the same as they were after one. Uh, after the second one, they tend to not be quite the same. They lose a little velocity and such. So then you have to price in, okay, on the pitching side, is he going to be the same quality of pitcher? Probably it's a little bit less than that. So um, hitting side, he should be fine. Bryce Harper and others have shown that they can do that. Um, so I think you you model it out like, okay, 2024 and on, you know, fairly normal expectations with a hitter using using the usual sort of caveats with aging decline and so on as he gets into his 30s. Pitching, I think you have to be a lot more conservative. Pretty, pretty much assume nothing in 2024 and a reduced sort of effectiveness from 2025 on. I think that's what we're looking at as the base case. And I think what we'll see probably, and this is far from a, you know, this is this is far from a new statement, any kind of breaking news or anything like that to anyone, but the team that bids the most for Otani is going to be the one who is most optimistic, who is either most optimistic about his future as a pitcher and his return to the mound, or there's going to be teams that have other incentives in place where in some particular situations, the impact of having this massive cultural icon and all of the marketing dollars that come with him is going to just be it's going to be bigger for some teams like you know it's going to make a huge difference for let's say the mariners it would make a bigger difference for them than it would make for the a's (laughs) or even you could argue that it would be a bigger deal for the mariners to get this huge spike in attention than it would for the yankees who already have a pretty high baseline of like media attention and and sponsorship opportunities and things like that. And they already have their superstar and judge and, and not to say that, uh, you know, the Mariners don't have their superstar and Julio, but um, they're, they're, that's kind of the, the wrinkle in this that really changes things for Otani in a way that we haven't seen before to this level with a top name free agent where there's some, some dollars we can't model, right? We can't, we from our perspective as kind of public evaluators can't put a number value a solid number value that we feel really confident on on what he brings to the team and for in terms of attendance and merchandise and marketing and international deals and sponsorships etc etc but it's likely higher for him than it has been for pretty much any other player in recent history so that's going to play a role in all of this no doubt um and i think there's a strong case to be made for the Giants. The San Francisco Chronicle just published an article about um, how the attendance at uh, Oracle Field, uh, Oracle Park, whatever it is, has dropped. And there are probably multiple reasons for it. Some speculation that it's due to demographic changes, people working from home and not coming into the city so they don't stroll to the stadium after work. Maybe that's part of it. Um, But, you know, the other part of it is the Giants don't really have a superstar. Yes, they've been somewhat competitive here and there with kind of bits and pieces of things with their own sort of strategy of platooning and so on. But they haven't really, but that, you know, 
there's no superstar on that team, right? <laughs> I tell my kids, name a giant. They're like, uh. <laughs> so, uh, so that would sort of solve that problem, right, for San Francisco. Um, but, you know, to your point, I think it would solve it for some other team who really needs to move the needle with attendance as well. And, you know, you look at some of the other contenders, you know, the Dodgers have Mookie and Freeman, Mariners have Julio, like, okay, there's stars in place already in some of these bigger teams that might want him. The Giants don't have one, so maybe that moves the needle for them. Yeah, that's a really good point, and there is a lot of turmoil right now with the Giants having another just middling and unexciting, I've seen the word boring thrown out a lot, um, type of Giants season, and people are attributing that to Zaidi and Moneyball and, and all of this, but the the end of the day they tried to swing big and it just didn't work out for them and i think there's some some legitimate questions to be had about kind of how their plan has played out i think if you looked at it from a longer term perspective that big 2021 that was the season where they won like a hundred and something games right um that yeah that big season in the longer term might have been a bit of a negative for that franchise just because you know i think they were progressing on a pretty expected path and then all of a sudden buster posey and brandon crawford drink from the fountain of youth and they're winning 110 games or whatever it was and realigning expectations in an unrealistic way um but aside from that year they were like pretty on track they were developing some of these top prospects and doing the usual you know scrap heap pickups find a mike yastrzemski and he's good for you type deal um we, we've talked a lot about what they've been able to do with their rotation with picking up the Alex Cobbs of the world that hasn't quite been as successful as this year this season Sean Mania and Ross Stripling haven't worked out for them um, but it seemed like they were at least on a fairly consistent path and they really tried to make that push this off this past off season. they tried with Correa and they tried with Judge and they missed on both of them for very different reasons um but yeah, I think you're right that the stars kind of align for them to make a push for Otani. Now, do they have enough in place to entice Otani? I think that's a really valid question. Um, do they have as much incentive to push for an Otani now if the A's are leaving town? You know, there's two ways to look at it. There's the A's leave town. That makes us the only show in town. Attendance is going to spike. We're going to have more revenue if we can put together a solid team and bring people to the ballpark. We're, we're going to be the only show in town. That's good for us. And then there's also the perspective of we don't have any competition anymore. We don't have to try as hard. People are going to come watch us regardless because if you want to see a professional baseball game in Northern California, this is the only show in town. So, yeah. So I, I see both arguments to that. And obviously the A's situation is the A's situation. Uh, we're at the end of the episode. We don't have any time to get into that. But, yeah, a lot of factors at play, obviously. It's Otani. It's it's going to be the biggest free agent sweepstakes we've seen and we're going to be talking about it all off season but i think you're right to point out the giants is a really strong contender here that would make a lot of sense help wanted superstar required oh yes and and (laughs) he can hit and he can pitch and guess what they need both of those yep yep well cool um we're about here on time the only other notes i had as Super quick hits. Uh, the Rays promoted top prospect Junior Caminero from Double A. This was totally unexpected, but they had to place a couple hitters on the injured list. And just generally speaking, this can maybe be a topic for the next episode since we don't have much time for it here. But generally speaking, 
teams have been really aggressive with some of their promotions in the back yeah. half of this season. And we've that seen a lot a of whole... top prospects yeah. skip levels. And, you know, is this just the latest fad and it's going to phase out as it, you know, doesn't work for these guys? Or is this like good, good player management, good player development? I, I don't know. We need to have a longer discussion on that yeah, than the couple of minutes we have here. Yep. yep. Um, but related while we're talking about the Rays, they made a, a stadium announcement and they have a stadium, but also they don't. And it's different from the current stadium, but also it's the same. And there's a lot to unpack <laughs> there as well. Um, yeah, that may be they have a quote unquote agreement for a stadium that is nowhere near finalized, but they announced it and there's a whole lot of shadiness involved. And they're saying that, you know, the city will pay this much, but actually there's a lot of kind of hidden subsidies I've seen in the deal. And so there's, a whole lot to unpack there that might not fit directly into the scope of this podcast, but it does impact their kind of revenue streams and, and their expected future payrolls. And that is pretty relevant to us. So that is another topic we can maybe get into more depth on, on the next episode. Sounds good. Well, cool. Um, anything else you want to get into before we wrap up for today? No, I think it's uh, I'll go back to my rainy, rainy weekend here in New Jersey. Well, out here in Arizona, it's finally under 100 degrees most days, and it's actually getting a little cool at night. I can turn my air off sometimes. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, definitely yeah. to fall now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the end of the regular season. Thanks, John. Thank you.